Good morning, Good morning everyone. I'm Corey McClagan. I'm the news editor at the Texas Tribune. I would like to welcome you on behalf of the Texas Tribune to the fourth annual Texas Tribune Festival and to how much should legislators disclose. This panel is part of the festival's open government track, which includes panels later today on open records, budget transparency, and dark money. Lunch will be held on the main mall, and the day will conclude with a reception here at the AT&T Center. There will be a shuttle between venues. I'd like to introduce our panelists. To my left is Jeff Leach. He's a Republican state representative from Plano. He was elected in 2012, and he serves on the House Criminal Jurisprudence, Urban Affairs, and Rules and Resolutions Committees. He practices law with Gray Reed and McGraw, McGraw PC, where he focuses on business, real estate, and construction law. Um, next, we have Representative Giovanni Capriglione, and he's a Republican state representative from South Lake in Tarrant County. He's also president of Texas Adventure Capital, LLC, a private equity firm. He was elected to the House in 2012 also, and he serves on the Government Efficiency and Reform Committee, as well as the International Trade and Intergovernmental Affairs Committee. Mr. Capriglione filed a bill last session that would have required legislators to disclose certain government contracts they were associated with. We'll talk a little bit more about that bill later, but for now, I'll just let you know that it did not pass. Um, <laughs> next, we have... Um, Steve Wallens, he's a former Democratic state representative from Dallas. He's now a lawyer with McCool Smith, where he focuses on class action and commercial litigation claims. Mr. Wollens served in the State House from 1981 to 2005 and wrote legislation on topics including ethics reform. For example, in 2003, he was the author of a major ethics reform law that requires office holders and candidates to disclose the occupation and employer of their contributors and report how much cash on hand they have in their campaign accounts. Next, we have Wilhelmina Delco. She has seen Texas ethics laws from both the side of a lawmaker and the side of an ethics commissioner. She's a former Democratic state representative from Austin. She was elected in 1975 and served for 20 years in the State House, where she was chairwoman of the Higher Education Committee. Before that, she was an Austin Independent School District trustee. Now Ms. Delco is serving a second tour of duty on the Texas Ethics Commission. She was appointed by Lieutenant Governor David Dewhurst. She was also Speaker Pro Tem when she was in the House. Oh, That's right. <laughs> And on the end, we have Jim Clancy. He's the chairman of the Texas Ethics Commission. He's a Republican. He's the president of Branscombe PC, which is a business law firm in Corpus Christi. He served as a captain in the U.S. Army. In 2010, he was appointed by Governor Rick Perry to the Texas Ethics Commission, which enforces laws on political contributions and expenditures, political advertising, lobbying, and the personal financial disclosure of state officeholders. Thank you all for being here this morning. This panel is going to last about an hour um, and will be followed by, well, an hour total, including about 15 minutes at the end for questions from the audience. Um, there's, there are microphones, as you can see, here in the audience, and I'll let you know when it's time for questions at the end. Please silence your phones. For those who want to tweet, the hashtag is TribuneFest. There's also a track 
specific hashtag for this event, TTF Open GOV. Let's see. So the point of having rules on what legislators are required to disclose <laughs> is so that when lawmakers are crafting legislation, the public can know what personal and business conflicts they might have. But we have a part-time legislature, a big state, and lawmakers who are paid just $600 a month. Mr. Clancy, does this set us up for some ethics problems? <laughs> uh, the purpose of the PFS is conflict. And so the question is, what, does, what is necessary in disclosure to, to make the public aware of conflicts? At the same time, we have citizen legislators. Um, they have regular jobs and they come to government with uh, all that extra experience. They're not permanent paid um, legislators. So the challenge is how do they make money 18 months and then serve for six months and deal with the conflicts accordingly? Probably the most common uh, issue that we face is about a third of the members of the legislature are lawyers and they have clients and they don't disclose their clients and the rules of professional conduct for lawyers prevent them from doing so. But many of them could be in a situation where the clients of them or their firm would have dealings with the government or other governmental agencies that might pose that type of conflict. So as long as we have a part-time legislator, a legis we, we have to come up with some way that is a reasonable balance between that. Hmm. For those of you who are on the legislature now, um, Mr. Capriglione and Mr. Leach, should you be paid more? Would that help the situation at all? I mean, I, I don't think so. I, I think one of the great things about Texas is the people that are entering this who are becoming legislators are doing it for reasons other than money, other than financial reimbursement. So I, I think there's a huge benefit to that. <clears throat> when I've seen other states that do pay, it's, it's a job, right? And for us, it's not a job. It's something we decide to do. So I, I don't think it would help. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't think we need to be um, paid more. And they say $600 a month, but I think after taxes, it, it ends up being about $17 a month. So um, it, really, it's nothing anyways. Uh, but, but look, we, I don't believe um, that we ought to be paid more. Many of us, or most of us, hopefully all of us do this because we're called to public service. We want to serve uh, the people who elect us. And uh, the reason that I'm so excited about this topic today, I think that um, for instance, here at the Trib Fest over the next couple days, there's going to be a variety of topics on which there is great disagreement and division among uh, people from different areas of the state, different, Repu different parties, Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals. But I think what we can all agree on is that people want and they, they need and they deserve open and honest government. And we ought to do um, everything we can to create that. That starts with us as elected officials um, in being transparent ourselves. And um, I think... We, we strive to do that, but there's much more that can be done. Mm -hmm. If I could, sure. I, I just disagree with the, with the premise of your question, mm. and therefore I take issue a little bit with your answer. Um, the the, um, the uh, focus of a disclosure, you have to look at what the policy is. The policy is going to be to eliminate undue influence in government action, not merely to give notice mm. of it. So if you discuss handling conflicts of interest simply with the disclosure, I don't think that's sufficient. And I would advocate 
prohibiting the conflict of interest, not necessarily giving notice of it, but just banning it. Mm -hmm. And the only reason that the legislature ever goes to the notice is when there's not enough support in a vote in changing an ethics law to simply prohibiting an act. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about members who are lawyer legislators who have uh, who are members of firms that lobby the legislature, I would advocate that that practice be prohibited so that you are never able to vote as a lawyer legislator on a bill where your firm is being paid to lobby. But the way around that, if you can't get that much support, is to merely disclose it. Mm -hmm. And we have failed not only to be able to prohibit it, but we don't even require the disclosure by a member of the legislature legislature from voting on an issue for which his law firm is being paid to lobby. And Ms. Delco, where do you think the line is between disclosure and banning conduct, as, as Mr. Wollens was talking about? I think it's very important to disclose, and I would have no problem. I watched every minute of Watergate, and I watched every minute of the Sharpstown scandal that brought about this concern in the legislature. Mm -hmm. And I think people would do honesty. And I also think that it's kind of hypocritical to say that you shouldn't be paid anything. Everybody in the legislature is not a lawyer. And you want the diversity of representation. So when you have somebody who is willing to give up their time from a per dollar per hour job, then they've still got to feed their families and support themselves. And I have no problem with people accepting contributions as long as they are willing to disclose them. The problem isn't getting the money, it's letting the public know where you got it and what that would mean in terms of what you vote on. And that's where I think the big conflict is, that there's this whole kind of subterfuge, I didn't know about this or I couldn't afford to do that. And that's fine for lawyers. And I think I'm the only one up here that is not a lawyer. I'm and not, if I'm not a lawyer, not then a lawyer. I, I don't have access to clients <laughs> who are willing to pay me just to be on the staff for this 180 days that we're in the legislature. So I think that legislators ought to be entitled to more pay. It's a J-O-B job. It's not an honor. It's a real responsibility. And a lot of times we were up there till 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning. My husband was still waiting for his dinner. My kids <laughs> were still wanting clean clothes to go to school. And you have other things to do. So. I think for lawyers it might be great to say, I'll do this out of the goodness of my heart. But for ordinary people, they still have obligations outside of their legislative duties that must be met. I think you get the money, but I think you have a responsibility to let everybody know what money you get, where it came from, mm -hmm. and what you should put it to. Mr. Clancy, looks like you want to jump in? Well, I wanted to, to address Steve's uh, idea and uh, tell a story. I had a case with some attorney general lawyers. Uh, they were bringing a criminal prosecution in a white collar case and I was just a witness. And we had met all day and we went to that high class uh, eatery called Subway. <laughs> and I tried to buy their sandwich mm -hmm. and they would not let me buy their sandwich. Uh, because the attorney general's lawyers have a code of conduct that prevents them from allowing anybody to buy them anything. Now, uh, I understand where Representative Wallens comes from when he talks about the lobby disclosure, but, I mean, let's deal with the, the real situation that we have here. You have a law firm that gets a road contract from the government, right, and that is not necessarily uh, prohibited because the law firm's not getting any cut of that, law for, uh, that contract. 
And what ends up happening is there's a construction dispute, right? And that construction dispute comes up and they need to find good uh, construction litigators like myself or Mr. Leach, you know, and they hire that firm to handle their construction dispute. Mm -hmm. And that is not prohibited. But it ought to be. Well, but if it's... That's the difference. I'm just saying that, that, that it ought to be prohibited, and if you don't prohibit it, then the lawyer legislator cannot vote on that issue, directly or indirectly, and it's so easy. Just don't vote. What, if, don't. what if there's not a vote involved? What if it's in the interim, Steve, and, and there, there's a, a governmental contract, and I've, I've practiced construction law, I represent mm -hmm. general contractors, many of whom do business um, with the state, but I'm not personally benefiting from that. I'm merely representing the client. And are you representing the client before a state agency? No. No. Then represent the client. But once you step in the legislature, once you put that hat on, whether it's in an interim committee or whether you're carrying a bill that's going to benefit your client or whether you're voting on an issue that's going to benefit your client, you, you don't. Well, the, the, the problem with that is, and I understand where you're coming from, but, it, but as a lawyer, our job is to, uh, we, we write laws in the legislature. We actually uh, practice the law as part of our job. And so really you can make the argument that every single vote we take in the legislature somehow impacts my job as a lawyer. Well, then either don't run for the legislature, quit practicing law, or, or it's not that complicated to know when you're voting on a matter that benefits a client. It is not hard to figure it out. It is different, it is different, and, and, the, and there's a definition of a conflict of interest and having a, a, a substantial financial interest in a business. It is different if, if it's 1991 and you're an, an employer and you're voting on workers' comp. Because it's easy, it's, it's going to affect everybody who is an employer receiving comp, and therefore I don't see it as a conflict of interest. But it is not rocket science when you're sitting there punching a button that's going to benefit a client of your law firm. It, you know when that's going to happen. You can figure that out. And therefore, on your own, you can decline to vote on that one button. Steve, does that include a vote on the budget? Well, it might. I mean, we want to, you know, it's Give easy me to an look at the lawyer question, but look at the... Look at the consultant issue. You know, we have a lot of folks who do really good work with uh, low-income Texans or in educational matters or serve as a consultant for a school board to help them on a curriculum issue. And if that legislature, you know, votes for a budget that includes money for education and part of their job is, well, I have this great interactive software that's going to help kids catch up and, and not be left behind, can I work for that company? It's, but there's such an easy answer, which is when you deal with the budget, there are, what is it, 500 votes that you will take before the budget comes out. And surely they're going to be on the section of the budget bill that relates to wherever that your client is making money. And so on that, you decide not to vote, and you, you, uh, you are refused to vote. And maybe on the final vote, you enter a, uh, a uh, exclamation or, a, or a whatever that it is, where you say that, that uh, your vote is on blank, but your vote is not on section blank. And if your vote is going to make a difference to the bill, then, then don't vote on it. I mean, why would you be embarrassed? You just say, I'm not going to vote on the budget bill because I have a direct interest in it. I have a financial interest. Who's going to get mad at you I, for that? I and if you have you so much business coming in as a result of being a lawyer in a firm, then perhaps you shouldn't be in the legislature. Well, what if you do oil and gas law? And yeah. I mean, you're advising about, clients on an oil and gas question. And what okay. about the people in your district that aren't involved in the law? They have a right to expect you to represent them in a vote on anything that deals with them, not just 
that relates to your job. You can be a parent. If you're a parent, does that prohibit you from voting to improve education or do something in your mm -hmm. district? Let's take you a, can expand that so you can't vote at all. And okay. if you can't Let's vote at all, why are you there? Let's Good take question. a look at a specific case from, from last session. Let's take a look at House Bill 524, which Representative Capriglione filed. It would have required um, disclosure if a lawmaker had a contract with the government right. where they had a 50% stake or more in the business right. or their family member did, if right? If they or a family member had control of a company that had a contract with a, a local or state entity, they would have to disclose it. And, and we'll talk about whether they can or can't do it, I okay. guess. Okay, and so, and then you were, by the way, accused of, of this being a vendetta against right. your former campaign That's opponent. Right. But tell us a little bit about the the challenges that you faced in the ledge getting a bill like this passed, which, sure. as I mentioned before, did not pass. Right, so it didn't pass. Uh, yeah, I think the, the first challenge was, quite honestly, I was a freshman, and uh, I was going for my very first committee meeting. It was kind of the State Affairs Committee. And I, you know, they, everything from hazing to uh, just, uh, you know, people, I guess, who were friends with the person that uh, they thought that I was doing this against got involved and I got whipsawed, right? I mean, really uh, brutally for, for, for trying to push this bill. But <clears throat> what happened is I got a lot of support from people at home, right? They're like, wait, they don't have to report now if they have a contract with the schools? Really? They don't have to report any county uh, 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 contracts that they have? And so what, it, what ended up, people were like, okay, this should be done, right? And, and I get it whether, you know, they, they should even be allowed to do it, but I don't, I don't think we can talk about whether they can allow to do it if they're not even disclosing it, right? And uh, so it went through, and that bill, it actually never made it through committee, but we were doing a, an ethics sunset bill, right? We were doing the ethics bill, a sunset. So I added that as an amendment because it was germane. And it got voted on, and it got added onto the House version of that bill. But then it got stripped in committee, and ultimately the governor just ended up vetoing the whole entire whole bill. <laughs> bill anyway. So, yeah, it, it, there's a lot of challenges, not just from a from a, like a bill legislating perspective. But it, I just got a lot of people saying, well, you know, what about this? What about that? Does this count? Does that not count? And I guess to your point is, well, who cares if it counts or not? Just say it, right? I mean, if you think that it might be a problem, because for me it always felt like a shield in a way that, hey, I'm telling you. And so, you know, there's no reason for, for anyone to, to go after me on it because I've disclosed it. I mean, mm -hmm. we can talk about, you know, people running for office right now who maybe didn't disclose contracts that they had. And when I filed that bill, it was called the Wendy Davis bill, right? I didn't, I didn't know what was going on then, but otherwise you get beat up in the campaign for not disclosing it ahead of time. Wendy Davis was your Senate sponsor. Yeah, I didn't ask her to be my Senate sponsor. Uh, yeah, all I know is I, <laughs> I went and I, I filed it, and uh, then you know, it, you know, the Texas Tribune was kind of like 15 minutes later saying, "Hey, she's your Senate sponsor," which ultimately also didn't help pass it. To be honest with you, because you know she was going to have difficulty passing much that that session. So yeah, and I think she kind of tried to do it in a way, say, "Hey, you know, I'm trying to support this bill." So that way, don't go after me for saying mm. that I'm against it. So y'all did not have a joint press conference? No, okay. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> no. You know, the personal so, part is irrelevant. Yeah. The personal part about? Wendy's involvement or non-involvement. I mean, you know, you, 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 you put together a good bill. Mm -hmm. It was a good bill. Sure. No, but and as a freshman, you always are looking for help from anybody. Sure. No, I, but and the but having it as a single shot bill was difficult. It is very difficult mm -hmm. in the legislature to pass a good ethics bill when it's a standalone 
single shot effort. And it works when you either do it as an amendment to a larger bill. Or some big omnibus. Or it's an yeah. omnibus right. bill. And then it's too big for people to start messing around with. And right. Mr. Wold, a lot of times the big ethics reforms that have come about have come about because of scandal, right? Yep. And so is yes. there, from the two of you who have many years of experience on the legislature, is you know, I'm thinking of the of um, Bo Pilgrim from hmm. the chicken company yes, passing out ten thousand dollar checks on the Senate floor, which led to ethics reforms, and then the creation exactly. of the Ethics Commission. Is is it possible to pass big ethics reforms when you're not in the middle of a scandal? You know, it's it's when you have a big bill, it gets to be easier. But but as you remember, we were trying to pass a, a workers' comp bill. It, it uh, failed mm-hmm. twice during two regular sessions, and it came up for three special sessions. It was over in the Senate being considered, and Bo Pilgrim, uh, who had a chicken uh, um, uh, processing company that had a lot of workers' comp claims, went on the Senate floor, passed out $10,000 checks. One state senator from, from uh, Fort Worth was outraged, outraged with Bo Pilgrim passing around $10,000 checks because he did not receive one. That's exactly right. But in any event. Exactly. Um, so it was easy for the legislature to come in 91 or 93, and we passed a bill that said you cannot pass checks during the session at the Capitol on the Senate floor, to which Dave McNeely, the columnist, said the legislature had it backwards. You should require campaign contributions to be made in the Capitol, in the rotunda, between 10 a.m. and noon, so the world can see the money changing hands. Wow. So, so, but what we did, and to go back to the original point, we didn't say you have to disclose when you're making a contribution at the Capitol. We just said you can't. You, can't do it. you just can't do it. And there were other instances, such as in the early uh, 80s, and you'll remember Jim Attix, uh, the Attorney General, was making, uh, disclosing where his campaign contributions, where the expenditures were going, and he would put MasterCard, $100,000. <laughs> All right, we figured this out, and we changed the law to say you can't say MasterCard. You have to say specifically where the money is going. But now I think uh, to go on that topic Mm -hmm. is uh, you can pay a consultant, right? And you can say, hey, I gave him $20,000. Right. But all you have to do, you know, it's an excellent point that you're making. Can you mask the individual um, uh, payee by cloaking it? in the name of MasterCard or yeah. the consultant. Right. So all the legislature, all you have to do next session is when you do that, do this bill that you had, yeah. which is a terrific bill, you say that if you're going to give X amount of money, in excess of X amount of money, to a consultant, you've got to break it down sure. as to who's getting the money. How much is going to the printer, how much is going mm-hmm. to the um, uh, TV, and et cetera. Mr. Yeah. Clancy? I was just, the, um, I was going to, talk about this contracting question for a second. Uh, Wilhelmine and I have the privilege of looking at uh, lawmakers' paperwork uh, at our meetings, and it's terrible, okay? (laughs) They make a lot of typos, and they leave stuff off and things like that, and and actually imposing on them a requirement to list all the government contracts that they might have an interest in could be a, a problem. And one of the things I was thinking about when I was thinking about the representative's bill, which has a very laudable purpose, is... Uh, when we file suits in federal court, we have to indicate who the uh, interested parties are. Mm-hmm. Not just Corporation A and Corporation B, but who's the people behind it that, that make money. And one thing that the legislature could do is they could say for any contract with a governmental agency, you have to file a certificate of interested parties. Who is going to make the money? And I'll give you just an, a couple of examples. For example, if, uh, if we just had a disclosure of a contract, right, that, that might be uh, 
that would only be the case if the legislator had a personal interest. But what about if we knew that contributor A, who owns Corporation XYZ, after he gets the contract, writes a $100,000 check right. to the, the candidate as a campaign contribution? Mm -hmm. You know, that's where the interested party question comes in, just like a situation where you may have a city councilman who awards a contract to the construction company for the county commissioner, while the county commissioner or, or, you know, awards the other road contract to the city councilman's road company. And if we were able to, as a part of the governmental contracting process, require that there be an, a list of who benefits from this contract, we would really have a, a, a situation to say, wait a minute, here's this bid and here's who's going to benefit from it. The other thing that, that it would also address is one of the dangerous and perhaps hidden things is to bring in a name brand governmental decision maker as a minority interest owner in a company to help it make its way through. So while it's easy if you own 60% of the road company to know that you're going to be not allowed to vote on that, well, what about if you own 10% and you abstain from the bill? But now you know that, oh, wait a minute, this legislature who has a small interest in this road company is going to get a big contract. Mm -hmm. And so that might be a way to achieve the desired disclosure without having to have the legislators do the paperwork and also be able to let the public see here are the different bids that we have for this service. Like Speaking of, of paperwork, um, Mr. Leach, as a member of the legislature right now, is there, are there any rules right now that you find too cumbersome, that too much red tape where, yeah, we're all for disclosure, but is there, is there anything that just is a waste of time? No, I, I think we actually, and if you, if you look at a survey of other states, I think Texas actually does a really good job when it comes to our personal financial statement and our, um, our campaign finance disclosures. Um, I, I've never felt like it's too onerous, and even if it was, it's the right thing to do to disclose it. And, um, and so we ought to do everything we can to uh, create, transparency, uh, create transparency to disclose what we need to disclose. I think we ought to um, put the, the PFS um, forms online. I think we ought to, it's one thing to have the, the right information out there. It's another thing to make it easily accessible for the taxpayers, the people of Texas. I think our campaign contribution forms are online. We ought to put the personal financial statements online as well. So the personal financial statements are online, but they're on the Texas Tribune website. They're not on, the state does not require Exactly, them to and be on God forbid something ever happened to the Texas Trib. Um, <laughs> God forbid something ever happened to TexasTribune.com, but those ought to be accessible from a state website, not a, not a third-party website. And let let me give you an example okay, of where ahead. there's, I think, a burden. Because uh -huh. I am sensitive to what you two say about we are citizen they're citizen legislators. And, and there has to be a balance between the disclosure and the conflict and just making the reporting so you're not trapped with a gotcha. So one of the disclosures that you have to make, that, and this is something that we did, that the legislature did in 91, is you've got to disclose certain categories of benefits, income, retainers. And here are what the, um, some of the uh, categories are. Regarding stocks, you have to disclose if you have 100 shares, uh, uh, more than 100 but less than 500, uh, more than 1,000 but less than 5,000, 5 to 10 and over 10. And I, when, when this was being debated, I just wonder what difference does it make whether you have 10,000 or 500 that's for purposes of the point. disclosure of whether there's a potential <clears throat> conflict. So I believe that you hit a threshold and then that's it. Right. And you don't have to worry about it being a little too high or a little too much. Either you do or you don't and then you stop. So mm -hmm. it's just one area and there are many areas where there are pitfalls 
from doing a disclosure and then getting trapped, getting caught, and having someone file a complaint against you or having to just stuck dealing with the commission for an inadvertent error. And I think you're right. <clears throat> On the shares, really what matters is percentage ownership, right? I mean, who cares about the number of shares? But also some of the ranges on income and, and gain and stuff, I mean, they're, they're just zero to 5,000, 5,000 to 25, and you're like, what if I'm at 25,001? Or what if, you know, I didn't include that last month and that were to put me in the, I mean, I think the ranges for the most part uh, don't, don't have a lot of value. And I agree. You know, this year is an awful lot of lawyer talk. <laughs> Give us some human talk, Ms. Well, Delco. You know, I'm looking at somebody who is promoting a cause mm -hmm. that they find out that the legislature is where you can have it addressed and corrected or amended or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they aren't embroiled in all of this right. because it's uh, somebody who works for a department store or works has, mm -hmm. might even own a, a store or something. Mm -hmm. And all of this double talk is just confusing to them. And so they're there. They don't want their, their picture or their name to be in the paper for having violated uh, some ethics law mm -hmm. because they bought a share of stock in something that somebody told them was a good deal and they were going to get rich. It didn't happen, but they bought the stock on that assumption. To me, a lot of the language in ethics is threatening to non-lawyers. They don't really understand. We don't really understand what all the fuss is about. Non-lawyers, you're talking about who are members of the legislature? Who are members of the legislature. And I realize that a majority of the members probably now are lawyers mm -hmm. because for some reason that's attractive to them. But I'm thinking of the conflict. <laughs> I'm thinking of the conflict when all you want to do is make them pay teachers more or put more into education or things that affect just ordinary, I'm not saying you all are extraordinary. <laughs> I'm just saying that for people who are not right. in the legislature as lawyers, mm -hmm. then sometimes this gets to be too nitpicky for people who are trying to be honest, trying to represent a constituency, mm -hmm. but might accidentally stumble upon great aunt Susie leaving them a share of stock or something. But, but, and they don't really realize the implications of not dis disclosing that or not adequately Disclosing so do you that. think but our ethics laws right now are, are too strict? They're getting every single session. I see Steve has a whole thing here. And He's got all a binder. I used to be just mesmerized by the long discussions on the difference between may and shall. People <laughs> would have hours of discussion on whether you should say may or shall. It didn't make a nickel's worth of difference to me because I didn't even understand what they were talking about. I still had to cast a vote. And the fear for non-lawyers is that at some point, me voting and thinking I'm voting for one thing can be interpreted by somebody who's opposing me as something else. And so I want the language to be as clear as possible and to cover a variety of issues, but not nitpick issues. And that's what most of this is. Well, we should have had this and not that. If you have 10 shares, it's this. But if you have 25 shares, it's this. That's, that's to me the fallacy in the whole law situation because it's a whole lot of nitpicking. Mm -hmm. Lawyers understand it and they're comfortable, but the rest of us are sitting there with glazed expressions wondering what in the world are they talking about. So what do y'all think about this? Is it, are the rules right now, are they too hard for, for legislators uh, to understand? First of all, Giovanni doesn't practice law. He's so nervous over here. He's not, he's not a lawyer. Uh, he, uh, it's okay. But, but I, I actually, so I'm a practicing lawyer, but I actually hire another lawyer to help See me, that. to help guide me through the, the, uh, the process <laughs> to make sure you're doing everything right. But the, 
the problem you run into is, is where do you draw the line? That's because right. if you're a legislator, and I agree with you, there are many people who serve in the legislature, me being one of them. I'm not there because I'm a lawyer. I'm there because I want to serve my community, and I want to, uh, I want to do the right thing. Um, and so, but, but the votes that we take, we take over 6,000 votes it's in a session. Absolutely. It's very complicated. It's very complex. <laughs> and if a legislator has a problem and gets frustrated filling out a personal financial statement, they're going to get frustrated reviewing, analyzing, and voting on a complex piece of legislation. And so I just, the, the, the question is, where do you draw the line? If, you, if you're going to require it, then let's require it for everybody. But you can't just carve out lawyers or people who may be smarter than other people or think they're smarter than other people. You've got to have everybody do it. You know, there's a safety valve to Wilhelmina's concern, which is an advisory opinion. And so because of this concern that, that people and, and, and either candidates or people serving in office have an easy way of figuring it out, when the legislature created the State Ethics Advisory Commission in 83, 85 or so, is that right? Um, uh, there was something put in there specifically that you can go call them on the phone and get a telephone opinion. Mm-hmm. Call them on the phone and say, I want to do this. Is it okay? And someone, you get them on the phone and they'll say, it's okay. And you say, what's your name? And you write it down, and then it's okay. And then when the legislature passed the Constitutional Amendment in 91, there, 91, 93, um, uh, uh, to, to uh, 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 create the State Ethics Commission and, and put it in the Constitution, 91. did the same thing, 91. Uh, you can go to the commission now, call them on the phone, and say, I'm confused about something. But, can I or can't I? And but it, but it's hard, Steve, to, and I've, I've had to do that. Um, I don't remember what the issue was, but it was when I was first running. I had a, a, a question we couldn't figure out, so we called the uh, staff attorney at the TEC, and we, couldn't, we got guidance, but we couldn't get an answer in writing. We couldn't get a le- an official legal opinion. And um, so, you know, you could get advice and they can say, well, we suggest you do this, but there may be this consequence. Well, that doesn't provide any security for us. I hear forward. you. And I think some of the, some of the, when we talk about violations or rule changes, some of them are minor, right? Mm-hmm. That maybe you have the wrong date or you have the wrong address on who contributed the money to you. you didn't get it in before midnight. You didn't get it in before midnight. But then there are some that are more serious, right, where you're actually voting on maybe because you were paid by a company to vote that way or that kind of stuff. So, but for us running for office, they're almost the same thing in terms of potential damage, right? Mm-hmm. That we have to go and make sure that, you know, we don't want to have to explain the midnight thing because people will say, well, that says ethics violation. And like, yeah, but, you know, this, that, and the other. So part of the challenge is figuring out really ultimately what are the ones that really matter, right? Which are the ones where you are voting on something that directly benefits your business, which is in the Constitution, right, that we're not supposed to do, right? And you should know. If this is helping your client, someone who's paying you, you already should have the obligation to P&B, right? I'm present, I'm not voting. But on these minor things, that, that's what we get, honestly, spend most of our time on doing the paperwork. You know, I go and I do Facebook ads, right? I probably, you know, I go and I hit boost post, right? You think, okay, that. But I know when I hit that boost post, I'm going to be reporting that post by the day, by the amount of money that I spend on that day. And it just, it just that part seems excessive, right? Mm-hmm. That, uh, Ms. Delco, you're now in charge of, of policing uh, this conduct, right, as a member of the Ethics Commission. So how do you sort of reconcile that with your frustrations about uh, all the red tape? Well, I think my frustration is what gets to be significant and what is not significant. Mm-hmm. That for, for, for lawyers, they get all caught up in stocks and bonds. But we have a lot of people that come before the Ethics Commission, for example, they uh, have volunteered to be the treasurer 
for their political party mm -hmm. and they didn't turn in the right form or mm -hmm. they didn't turn it in by a certain time mm -hmm. or they didn't even know they were supposed to turn it in. Mm -hmm. That's where the frustration is. Okay. The people who are outside, lawyers who deal with stocks and bonds know all of those can be dissected enough to get them implicated. Mm -hmm. And their opponents, we have some group, and I'm not sure whether in Houston or Dallas, but they must spend 24-7 going over mm -hmm. accounts to see where they can file a complaint against somebody with the idea in mind that they got somebody to run against them next session. And I think that's fine for that group, but for the greatest majority of people in the legislature and the greatest majority of the people out there voting, mm -hmm. unless you're doing Sharpstown or Pilgrim's Chicken or Watergate, they don't understand all of the little intricacies of this process, and they just look upon the whole process as a bunch of crooks. Mm -hmm. And I think that's unfair mm -hmm. and untrue. Mm -hmm. And the more we get into the minutia of this, the more suspicious the general public is about what what are they doing up there mm -hmm. but but the minutia gets to be important and and yeah. and, 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 let, and let me put them both together so Bo Pilgrim comes there we pass the legislature passed a bill says it's uh, against the uh, against the law to make a contribution during the session of capital period you understand that that's yeah. easy so a legislator has to have coffee in his office and once a week he goes to Starbucks and spends $15 on a bag of Italian roast to make it in his office. Pays for it out of his campaign contributions, perfectly legal. Texas Restaurant Association decides once a week that they want to bring a bag of the same Italian roast to the legislator's office, drop it off, therefore saving the legislator $15 from paying for it for himself. Is that a campaign contribution made at the Capitol during session? The answer is yes. Is it de minimis? Does it make a difference? No! So, so, so you have to get involved in the minutia, and That's therefore right. the commission was asked this very question. And they came out with, uh, I think it's called the, uh, the, uh, the coffee, cake coffee cake rule, which is if your constituent gives you coffee cake during the session, it's okay which is the same as the bag of coffee. And maybe it makes a difference if it's given to you once a week by the Texas Restaurant Association or once a month, and I don't know the answer to that. But we do have to get into the weeds. Otherwise, the weeds get so big that you can wind up with a very serious violation. And it looks bad, and it goes to the underlying purpose. What are you trying to do? If you're trying to eliminate undue influence in governmental actions, you have to pay attention to these mm -hmm. to these. Actions. Okay, we're going to um, go to questions in just a couple of minutes. Everyone, think of your questions and make your way to the microphone. I'm going to ask uh, one last question of our panelists. Um, this is for you, Mr. Clancy. I wanted to ask you if, um, if a, a lobbyist makes a, gives a gift to a legislator, is it easy for members of the public to find out about that? Mm -hmm. And that, Steve, this is in line with what you were just saying. Um, PFS requires you to report gifts. Okay. But it says it does not include gifts from lobbyists. Okay. The lobbyists have to report gifts on their own form. But the problem is the lobbyists have a joint expenditure rule. So if I want to buy a gift for someone, I have to report it if it's $50 or more. But if we get 10 of us together, we can give them a gift for $500. And none of it gets uh, never gets required. And if we have a big shindig, where we have 10 legislators and 10 lobbyists, and we split it among everybody, well, now we can have $5,000 worth of, of party. 
And the, the struggle is, and this is sort of a statistical problem, um, our lobby reports are supposed to indicate who the direct expenditure of a lobbyist is for, right? Was it for a representative? Was it for a senator? What is for? And the lobby reports show that about 10% of their expenditures were to influence a particular individual. The other 90% are joint expenditures below the threshold. And so it ends up defeating the purpose. And, and so, you know, both not having uh, lobby gifts show up on the PFS and, not, uh, and, and the joint expenditure rule preventing it ever being identified from who's going to what is, is, is a problem in terms of how the gifts are done. And, and what makes it more complicated is when you define who is a lobbyist. So without discussing um, issues before in the newspaper now about dark money, to make it simple, what if your spouse is a lobbyist? And what if your adult child is a lobbyist? And does that mean that a gift that you get from your adult child who is a registered lobbyist is either has to be disclosed or it's prohibited. So there are, there's just an enormous amount of minutia that has to be addressed in terms of controlling undue influence. And what, can I just, because yes, I have you here. What is, so on the report, so if, I think if a lobbyist gives it, they're trying to make sure that they don't lose their lobby license, so they're going to go and do, and do as much as they can. But on our PFS, it says, okay, is it a gift of $150? So let's say I get married while I'm a legislator, and then I have a wedding, and there's a reception, and people, right? I'm supposed to report everybody that gives me anything that's worth more than $150. There are opinions on this. This is not the first time really? this question yeah. is, has <laughs> happened. Yeah, I mean, that's the same. I mean, right? Is that right? You have to go Provided and report. Provided they're not within that protected group. You know what, I bet you of the 150 members of the House, there are a whole lot of us that didn't even understand the discussion going on because this is high-level lobbying. We're looking for a free lunch or something, and, and that's all. I mean, that's a big deal. When you sat down at a, one of those restaurants and somebody would come over, or what was, became, became more threatening when all of this controversy came up, you were sitting there with a group of folks, and then when you got ready to pay the bill, they'd say, that's already been covered. Mm -hmm. And you think about Watergate. It really gets to be trivi trivial, but it gets to be terrifying yeah. trivial because you don't know when any of this is going to come back to haunt you. Mm -hmm. So okay. it, it really does. I think we've, in some cases, gone too far. Okay. And, and, but particularly for members, and I hate to keep dumping on you guys, but <laughs> members who are not lawyers, you know. Okay, let's, uh, let's take some questions from the audience. And um, what I would like to hear is uh, questions and, and not speeches, but I'm sure y'all would never do that. But go ahead to the microphone. Oh, it's, sorry, it's so high. There you go. I have two questions, but if no one else is in line, I'll just uh, ask one. Okay. Uh, the question has to do with uh, why all the ethical focus is always on finance and money when there are other potential criminal kinds of issues uh, that uh, there could be ethical charges about. For example, uh, if someone has been uh, charged and convicted with domestic violence, let's say, or back in the olden days when nobody cared about domestic violence and there was a civil suit uh, and they were ordered to pay, but they never paid over decades. Why are these kinds of issues never considered as ethical violations? Mr. Clancy, do you want to take that one? That's a great question. Yeah. Well, the, the, our commission, while... Uh, is responsible for enforcing election code and government code provisions. Government code that addresses the lobby, election code that addresses campaign finance and, and things like that. And so uh, 
they've given us the title ethics. Probably the only you know term when we get into ethics is gifts and expenditures. Most of it is on the disclosure side. But these guys can do something about it. He can't because right. he just has to follow the law. These guys get to make it. Right. So you can ask these guys, and they can fix it. And the way they fix it is either they could change the law, which may be unconstitutional. You may have to put it in the Constitution because it goes to who is qualified to serve, which is all in the Texas Constitution. Or you can kind of nibble around the side and change the House rules to say that if you've been convicted of whatever, if you've been charged with whatever, you cannot serve. It'll set up a... a, 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 a a lawsuit, and maybe the rules can't get away sure. with it, but that can be addressed. Yeah, and that's a good point. I mean, so when we talk about the Ethics Commission, a lot of times people think it's about ethical behavior. A lot of it has to do with compliance with campaign, doing campaign stuff. Yeah. But in terms of, and that's a good point, you know, hey, maybe we should set requirements in terms of who's eligible to run and who's not eligible when you, to run. No, no, do the rules. When you do yeah. the rules the second day, yep. put it in what she just said, and it'll be all over the newspapers across the state of Texas, okay. and everybody's going to be in a bind as to how to vote. Sure. And someone's going to try to figure out how to call it on a point of order that is not relevant. Yep. They may lose. And then you've really got everybody in a bind voting on that. Representative Taylor, Van Taylor from Plano, had a bill last session that would have, um, oh, this was, uh, would, would have prohibited someone who was convicted of a felony, not charged or indicted, but convicted, finally convicted of a felony from serving in the legislature. And uh, he couldn't even get a hearing on the bill. Yeah, and There was also a bill to change the name of the Ethics Commission to the Compliance Commission, oh, right? Lord. At some point, that didn't go anywhere. So I, I, agree, with, I agree with you, ma'am. Yeah, we'll work on she's that. She's talking about a bill that, did you beat your wife this morning? You know, if you're talking about family violence and all that, that opens up a whole new area that would probably touch a whole lot more people than the violation mm-hmm. of the money. Because people could use the legislature as a pulpit for talking about violence, rape, child abuse, all sorts of things. And just how far do we want to go with this? Mm-hmm. Is there, does anyone else have a question? You can ask your other question. <laughs> Thank you. Um, my other question has to do with school board trustees and candidates for school board. Mm-hmm. I believe it was last session there was a measure passed that isolated one county uh, and asked for financial disclosure, disclosure for school board candidates. And there was an attempt to make that statewide, but no one wanted to go with that. Yet we know of the 1,000-plus school boards that there are oftentimes financial issues uh, that are in conflict with good ethics. So we tried to do that in 2003, and it passed. Uh, Jim and I were just discussing it. It passed, and the school boards went crazy that they'd have to file the same financial disclosures that the uh, 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 office holders have to. And before that, it was a fight to get the county government, county commissioners involved in it, even though they were spending millions of dollars having roads paid for their backyards. And so after, in the 80s, you got county commissioners doing it, it wasn't until 03 that we got the cities to do it because they had been fighting it the whole time. So it is just a matter of how far you take it. The schools were included in 03, and then somehow during the special session, because they were raising so much uh, hell over it, they got backed out of it, I think, in an amendment, but there's no reason that it shouldn't come back and that all of them shouldn't be thrown in there to have to file a financial disclosure. In fact, if you look at under school board trustees, uh, having to report food, entertainment, and lodging for school board trustees is specifically accepted from the reporting requirements, if you look at it. There is just one little section that will say, hey, school board trustees, so they could get a trip from a, a customer, a vendor, or an employee, or whatever, on a Super Bowl. Trip, which is what happened, right? And they don't have to report any of that kind of stuff. So there, there's a real problem with local compliance in the state of Texas. Mm-hmm. Okay, 
we, we recently uh, had a matter involving a, a county that had eight school districts in it, and the trustees of that school, those school districts were reporting at less than 50%. Where was that? Um, so one of the challenges... <laughs> 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 one, of, one of the challenges is that as long as you have school boards file with school board secretaries, city file with city secretaries, counties file with county commissioners, and we have this $3.5 million web-based software that's launched in January 1st yep. that does not, take, that does not accept their reports because they all get reported locally. I mean, how, that's, how that's hard, a genuine problem. Jim, how hard would it be to get the local school board, city councils, uh, councils, county commissioners to report to the Texas Ethics Commission? It would require a bill from the legislature. And that's the hard part. <laughs> you know, they are deficient not only in disclosing that, they are deficient in many, many areas of the law, especially in open records and uh, uh, open meetings. Major, major failure to comply with the details of those two very important laws. Yeah. But back on that, so how much more resources would it take? I mean, obviously it could store a lot of that information, but if, if all of a sudden you were going to have to enforce the law among, you know, thousands more counties and cities and... Right. 7,000 people file with the commission. 70,000 are subject to the commission's laws. All right. So it's a tenfold increase in the amount of people. But the question is not, I mean... If we had to go from 400 sworn complaints to 4,000 sworn complaints, that would be a real problem, yes. you know. But the, the real question is, if this is the law that you're supposed to disclose these things and it's not being disclosed at all, mm -hmm. what do we do? Yeah. You know, close our eyes and our ears, mm -hmm. not say anything, you know, or do we say, okay, we have a problem with how we would enforce that, yeah. you know, how we're going to manage that uh, and figure out how to do it. But in the meantime... Here's the educational process, here's the, the, the software process, and let's all figure out how to get compl in compliance, you know, over the next two to four years. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Let's take uh, the next question. Go ahead. If a bill to keep felons from serving in the State House was not passed, that begs the question, um, are there currently convicted felons serving? And if so, how many and where in the legislature? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I do, uh, just because we were around a little bit. But there was one who was uh, convicted of cattle rustling, if that's rustling, cattle rustling, I think it was. I think that's the right term. And it was in 1983 or 84, and uh, he, w he continued to serve. And then there was another member who was convicted of a felony, and there was a call by the legislature that this individual uh, resign. Uh, but, but you don't have to because because it's not the law, but you, the law can be changed. What's, what's great about this entire conversation is nothing's written in stone and everything can be changed. Mm -hmm. Everything's fixable. Yeah. Well, and it can be extended too. Yeah. All you gotta do is write in school boards and county commissions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's all you have to do. The Go ahead, next question. Yeah, this, is for, uh, yeah. this is for Mr. Clancy. Um, Friends and family and colleagues ask, you know, about how to follow the money. And I say, I'll oh, just go to the ethics, you know, website and follow it. Most of them come back and say they can't do it. Do y'all plan to improve it? I mean, it takes a lot of practice to get pretty good at it. Um, I, I would, I mean, if, if they really want to do analysis, the data is available. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we, you know, the, it's possible to download data that can then be manipulated in a database or a spreadsheet to see, you know, by contributor, by source. There's, there's lots of ways to do it. 
Yeah, I know how to do that and do it and all of that, but to the average person who has an interest just hits the brick wall real quick. Hmm. You've you got to have a certain level of you know, geeky to, to get it there. So no plans right now? I, I think, we've, I think our, the data is in pretty good shape the way it is now. Um, and you're right, but I'll, I'll give you an example. Let's say we were, the commission were to say, uh, we're going we're gonna to indicate the top ten you know, people who spend money on transportation and lodging. That's not the commission's job. Okay. You know? the, the commission's job to, is to enforce and create a system of disclosure that allows the public to draw its conclusions. You know, and I think we do that very well, and I think the com- commission is very unified in what it does. If you look at the Federal Election Commission, it's also bipartisan, and it splits 50-50 every vote. Mm-hmm. You look at our situation, we deal with some difficult questions, and in almost every instance we're unanimous despite being a bipartisan commission because we, we believe in disclosure. Okay. All right, thanks. Thank you. I think we have time for this one last question. Go ahead. All right. Uh, Mrs. Delco cited the negligible salary of state legislators as being something that creates a risk of ordinary people, as she put it, not being able to serve in the legislature. Are you at all concerned that the state legislature is becoming or has become uh, the purview of the well-connected and the affluent, and what can you do as legislators or as the commission, or what can we do as people to prevent that from happening? Mr. Leach, you want to take that? Look, I, 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 just, I just disagree um, with the, um, the the premise because when I ran, I was 29, year old, 29 years old. I had no connections. I didn't really know anyone in the legislature. Um, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't well-connected. I wasn't well-financed. I was just a guy who felt the call to serve and decided to run. And I think most of the members in the legislature, in the House and in the Senate, are like that. Um, are there a few outliers? Probably. There always will be. But uh, when you start making service in the legislature a financially lucrative position and job, I think you, um, you attract the wrong people. And, um, and, and so I, think, I just disagree with the premise that people who may happen to be a lawyer are serving in the legislature with the wrong intentions. But, but, but he didn't say a lawyer. And, and no, but, but I think the, the idea is that only the well-connected can serve because you don't get paid anything. And I disagree with that. I, a- I think it's a matter of privilege, and I think there's a basis for what you say. And, and I agree that you don't necessarily do anything about it. I don't agree that you do anything about it, so I agree with you. I agree with this premise, that there is a basis for concern that only those who can get by without working five months a year full-time, full-time and then serve a year and a half in the interim doing this and well, remember, then run for election and somehow being able to get by with occupational okay, income. But during the session, let's remember, we do get paid $150 a day during session. You do? Yeah, we diem. do, per diem. And yeah, so it's yeah. not like we aren't making anything. Um, and so <laughs> She didn't get that. But I mean, look, it's a decision you have to make when you decide to serve. You know what you're getting yourself into. I, I, I just think the cause for... Um, Malfeasance is there when you make this a financially lucrative job. And I think, but to, to, to your point, which is, okay, well, how can you do this? But I think if you flipped it around and paid, like California does, eighty-five dollars to $100,000 a year, then your concern is, are they doing this just for a job? Are they running again just so that they don't lose their income? I mean, you end I up having a, a, a... No, I know. We're I'm just, just saying, a, he's, 
there's a basis for what he says, sure. and it's not going to get fixed. Yeah. <laughs> I, no, I agree with what you're saying. It's a good question. I think most of the non-lawyers who run run on a specific issue. They get upset about something the legislature is or is not doing, and I'm going to get up there and make them address this. So if it's a motivation... I'm a lawyer, and the reason I ran had nothing to do with me being a lawyer. There were, well, I, I am a homemaker, and right. my running for all those offices had very much to do with what I was considering the quality of life for my family and my mm -hmm. community. And my husband says to this day that I have built in radar for all the non-paying jobs in the prison. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think we're going to have to leave it there. Yeah. Thank you all so much. We're out of time. That's pretty Please good. Give, really me, give a hand to our panelists. Thank you for coming. Yeah, you did good, Corey. I didn't even get on that. I think we're doing over.